fortunate to have Seth Kindig on this podcast. Kindig is the director of girls basketball and head varsity coach at Providence Christian Academy in the Atlanta area. You may have come across Kindig's notes from coaching clinics or podcasts. He does a great job with them. You should check them out if you haven't seen them. Kindig also started TCD Teams, which helps coaches create transformative relationships with their players. Coach Kindig, Seth, thanks for talking some basketball with us today. How's everything going in Georgia? It's going great. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm on spring break, and so I'm getting to uh, visit with quite a few coaches this week. And uh, yeah, excited to excited to be here. Well, we were talking beforehand, and yeah, we've been able to talk to some of the same people, and and uh, you know, I know that they have me really excited about uh, summer basketball, and then mm-hmm. uh, and then getting back into this uh, um, into the winter season. But uh, before we jump into today's topic. I wanted to give you a chance to give a little bit of your basketball background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I have a really interesting journey. I, I think I've probably gotten one of the best, but also one of the luckiest coach educations you possibly could. Um, I always knew I wanted to be a coach growing up. Um, I knew it from a very young age. I actually have journals from when I was in high school that I took of my coaches in high school, things I liked that they did or didn't do or whatever. Um, And then when I went to Davidson College, um, I went there originally to play baseball. That didn't last very long. And I saw an ad in the paper. My roommate and I saw an ad in the paper to to come and practice with the girls' basketball team if we'd played basketball in high school. And I'd played basketball in high school. And so we showed up thinking there would be a group of guys there. Well, turn out we were the only two to show up. But that started a four-year journey where I practiced with the women's team at Davidson Every single day, I actually met my wife there. My wife is a former Davidson player named Laura Murray, now Laura Kindig. She actually graduated as, as Davidson's all-time leading scorer, so she was a, a superstar. My sophomore year of college, uh, I started coaching middle school girls. Um, my junior year of college, while I was coaching middle school girls, I also coached a 17U national team for a local a group called Pro Skills Basketball, which now is is all over the country, and now their their top level teams are asked, is actually uh, Team Curry, and um, and so all in a span of three years, I was coaching middle school girls. I was teaching sixth graders who had never played sports before uh, basketball. I was practicing every day with the Davidson women's team, getting to see a mid major Division One program, how it operated, and see those athletes at work, and then coach. Uh, high school players in the spring and summer who wanted to go play in college. And so um, I had some incredible mentors along the way, but, um, but yeah, that was, I, I got um, a pretty incredible and unique coach education really fast. A lot of it by doing, not so much by studying and research, but a lot of it by doing. Uh, and then um, after college started, uh, came to Providence and have been coaching here ever since. That's my my coaching uh, journey, I would say not so much my leadership journey, but that's, that's how I got started. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of the leadership stuff a little bit later, but what a, what a cool story. Um, what was it like uh, being on that, uh, the practice, the practice dummies, if you will, or yeah. practice smarties, we'll say that. Right. Yeah. And no, it was, it was incredible. You know, me, I, I say this and it's, I kind of shudder at it now, but I was your typical ignorant high school boy who had all these types of opinions about girls basketball and what it was as a, as a bo- high school boys player. Um, but I remember going back to my dorm room after that first practice and I remember taking my shirt off and I was just bruised everywhere. <laughs> and I was just amazed by the level of physicality and just, I mean, really quite honestly how good they were. So there was, it was a rude awakening at first. 
Um, but honestly, I mean, it was, it was incredible. I thought that, you know, Hey, we'd scrimmage them some or whatever, or, but I mean, the first day they sat there, they gave us gear. We went through all the drills that they did. We were always the defender or always, if they were working on, on defense, we were always the offensive player. We were scouting the opponents that a coach would take us up to a practice court for the first 30 minutes of practice and take us through their sets. And so we would run the other team's sets. It was, it was really, really cool. So not only were you getting the opportunity to see what they were doing, but we were also having to study why they were doing what they were doing. We were having to, you know, pretend to be opponent, uh, opponent scouts and opponent uh, opposing players and run their stuff and, and think about why they ran what they ran. So it was, it was really cool. It was, it was an awesome experience. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I'd say uh, if there's any uh, high school kids out there listening that are thinking about getting into coaching, uh, when you get to college, see if you can do that. It's a, 100%. You, yeah. 100%. So, um, we're formatting today's podcast a little bit different. Um, I asked uh, Coach uh, Kendig to identify five tips coaches can use to be better basketball coaches. And so he's put together a list, a great list that I'm excited to hear more about. So if you're ready, uh, let's go ahead and dig into tip number one. Awesome. What would you suggest to be a better coach? All right. Well, um, just for some context, uh, if, if you ask me this question, I normally I would have taken months and researched and studied to come up with my list of five <laughs> just to just to give you a little bit uh, into how I'm wired and the way I like to think through these things. So it actually was good practice for me, I think, to kind of come up with these a little bit almost uh, on shorter, shorter notice and just be OK with them and kind of run with them. But um, the first one I am sure is the is is number one for me, and it's the thing that I would say if any coach asked me this question. This is the first thing I would say, and it's been something that's been transformational for me. Um, but the first thing I would say, tip to be a better coach, is to know yourself to lead yourself, and really that's a statement on what I would call self awareness. Um, I define we define maturity in our program as self awareness. So more mature person is more self aware. A less mature person is less aware. And the, the reason why something like self-awareness and knowing yourself is so important is because each of us as coaches, we all have tendencies that are hardwired into us that come from a combination of what I call uh, your nature, you know, your, your brain chemistry, literally how you were put together, your, your nurture, your environment, how you were raised, the type of parents you had, the values that you have, all that stuff, the experiences you've had in life, good and bad and how that shaped you, and, and then choice um, and your choices. And so from nature and nurture and choice, we all have sets of tendencies. And if we don't realize it, if we're not aware of it, we all walk around assuming that everyone else is like us. Uh, but the truth is that everyone else, guess what? They also have their own unique nature, nurture, and choice. And so actually, most people are not like you. And so if we coach, um, as if our players should be like us, or I would say if we coach like our players are like us, and even if we're not coaching that way, I would say a lot of coaches that I work with are coaching as if their players should be like them. Um, but if we're coaching that way, then we're not even, uh, we're, we're not even doing uh, what I would say is the minimum to be able to reach our players. And so I think self-awareness, knowing yourself as a coach, knowing what your tendencies are, it helps unlock for you um, being able to recognize what other people's tendencies are, most notably like your players, so that you can reach them, so that you can know what it's like to be on the other side of you and know what it's like to be coached by you, so that you can start 
having uh, being intentional and leading yourself as a coach to make sure that uh, you're doing what's right for your players and you're thinking about your players first. Um, so know yourself to lead yourself would be my tip number one. I think that's a great, great way to start, you know, and it's also something that, uh, you know, I really have to, <laughs> yeah, remind myself that, hey, I'm a, I'm, I'm a middle-aged guy and I'm teaching uh, or coaching 16-year-old uh, girls. What they kind of, what I kind of think versus what they kind of think are two, a lot of times, way different things. So, you know, that's something to remember. And then, you know, it kind of reminds me of a story that I had with uh, one of my mentor coaches. And um, he got pretty frustrated with this with this kid. Uh, the kid was a, a sophomore, um, but he was a real big kid, like 6'5", and he, you know, he had to shave every day and stuff like that. And I said, well, coach, you know, I know one of the things that you get frustrated with is that you're viewing you're viewing this player as an adult because he looks like an adult coach. He's 15 years old and he's thinking about 15 year old things. And uh, in fact, uh, the coach and I were just talking uh, a couple of weeks ago and he brought that up as something that, you know, was a real um, something that he, he really learned about himself when he started thinking that way. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great story. I, I often, the, the example I often use is most comes down to how we provide feedback. And typically, uh, not typically, if you're not, if you don't know yourself, then you provide feedback the way that you prefer to receive feedback, right? And so the example I always use is that um, there are, um, I would label four different types of leadership voices. I would say there are character-centered voices, there are chemistry-centered voices, there are credibility-centered voices, and there are competency-centered voices. We could go into what all those four are another time. But I, for, um, I say that to say I'm a competency-centered voice. What that means is that what I'm a, if I didn't realize it, so completely subconsciously without even trying to, just based off my wiring, I always am valuing other people based on their competence. And I'm actually making value judgments without realizing it based on my own biases on other people based on how competent I feel like they are. So if that's true of me, and that's how I'm naturally wired, that for most of my life I spent having no idea that that's what I was doing. But if that's what I do, then what do you think I'm trying to give to other people or show to other people? Well, guess what? I'm trying to prove that I'm competent. And so because of that, our two words for feedback that we use in our program are support and challenge. And challenge is critical feedback. Support is positive feedback, right? Encouragement speaking vision into people. And because I'm a competence-centered voice, I crave challenge from other people, right? Because I'm always trying to become better at what I'm doing. Uh, and that's natural to me. Then when some other people challenge me, I really appreciate it. And, and it brings life to me. It actually brings energy to me. And so if that's true about me, again, we, we, we live in this, uh, you know, this dynamic of if that's true about me, then what is it easy for me to dish out? Well, it's easy for me to dish out challenge. But if I am challenging my team all the time, if all my players ever hear from me is what they can be doing better, that creates a certain culture. Often, I would say it's a culture of, of fear. It's a culture of manipulation. It's a transactional relationship. And so because I know that about myself, I now can be intentional about instilling strategies and behaviors to make sure that I'm balancing my support and challenge well and that I'm meeting the players that are whatever players right in front of me and providing what they need in that moment, not what is easy for me to give because that's what I prefer to receive. Awesome, great points there and some stuff that I've learned along the way. Um, so uh, we could talk about this for a while, but we got uh, four more, so let's get mm -hmm. to number two. Cool. 
Um, so number two um, is actually, I may have switched it up on you, but okay. um, it was the nature nurture choice tool, which I talked about earlier. Um, but I figured I would kind of go into that in the first point. So I switched it to something that I'd call just the support challenge matrix. And this is um, <clears throat> easy to explain. It's, it's easy to, to um, see as a visual. So I'm going to try and paint a picture first, but this is just a way to think about feedback. And it goes very hand in hand with the nature nurture choice tools as well. Um, but if you imagine an axis, right? So think of an X, Y graph in math. I'm a math teacher, right? And the horizontal axis is challenge. And to the far right is high challenge. And to the far left is low challenge, right? So the, the further you go to the right and you're and bringing more and more challenge, the further you go to left on that axis, you're, there's less and less challenge. Um, and the vertical axis is support, right? So, uh, you know, the further up you go on that axis is, is high support. The further down you go is low support. Well, the combination, the different combinations of, of support and challenge create different types of cultures. So the reason why I would say the support challenge matrix is a tip for coaches uh, is I would always think about the culture that you're creating by the type of feedback that you're giving. Um, and so, for example, um, a culture that would be in the bottom left of that axis, axis right? So that would be low support and low challenge. Um, that's what we would call an abdicator culture. And that's a culture of apathy and low expectation, right? There's no support because no one's speaking life in anyone. No one's providing any positive feedback, but there's also no challenge. And so people don't feel like they're growing and they don't feel like they're um, getting better. Um, in the bottom right, that would be a high challenge, low support culture. That's what we call a dominator culture. And that's what I already described in tip number one. That's a culture of fear and manipulation um, where there's lots of challenge, but that's all you ever hear. You don't really get to hear about the good that you're bringing to the team, the good that you're providing to the culture, um, what is true and unique about you and your specific role. That's the dominate. That's like what we call a dominator culture. The top left, which would be low challenge but high support, is what we call a protector culture. And a protector culture is a culture of entitlement and mistrust. Uh, and the reason I think the entitlement piece is obvious, if all I'm hearing all the time is how great I am and I'm never being challenged, then guess what I get convinced of? I get convinced that I'm great and I don't need to be challenged to grow or that I don't really have any room to grow. Um, but the reason why it's a culture of mistrust is because what happens in a protector culture uh, is that players um, or students get used to um, how they're being treated. So when you do try to challenge them, they feel like it's a huge bombardment of, of who they are. It's a violation. Um, and the example I always use is like being late to practice. So imagine that you have a player who's late to practice and they're just a couple minutes late and you say, you know what, I'm a support oriented coach. I'm really good at support. I want my players to feel like they belong. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm not going to say anything about it. Well, what happens the next day? Well, then that player's three minutes late the next day, right? And you kind of go through this cycle where it goes from three minutes to four minutes to five minutes to six. Minutes. Well, when it gets to 10 minutes, what do we do? We blow up, right? And we say, you know, you don't value our time and you don't want to be here and you're not a part of our culture, blah, 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 all this stuff. Well, really, actually, coach, it's not their fault. It's your fault because you didn't challenge them and hold them to an expectation the first time they didn't meet the expectation. And holding them to that expectation doesn't mean I have to yell at them, doesn't mean I have to get on to them, but it means the expectation needs to exist. And I have to bring it up when they don't meet it, whether it's going to be something they want to hear or not. And so what happens is that they learn to mistrust you because they have no idea when you're going to choose to, to uh, bring in the expectations or not. 
Um, and so that's a protector culture, okay? And then the top right is what I would call a liberator culture. And that's obviously what we want to strive to be. Um, but uh, a liberator culture is a culture of empowerment and opportunity. It's where players feel empower, empowered to be themselves and, and to lead. And they also feel like there's opportunity for them to grow because they're being challenged. They know where they need to improve, but they also feel understood because they're being supported and receiving that positive feedback. And so the tip that I would provide to coaches is to ask you as a coach to think about yourself and think about where do you lean naturally? Do you lean towards being a more of a supporter or more of a challenger? I already told my story a little bit how I'm a natural challenger. I think there are just as many coaches that are probably natural supporters. And wherever you more naturally lean, there's probably some intentionality that you need to insert into your coaching to make sure that you're moving your team into a liberator culture, right? So if you're more of a natural supporter, what are the strategies you're going to use to make sure that challenge happens in your program so that you can move your team from what would you would tend to lead them to, which would be a protector culture into a liberator culture. And then the vice versa, like I've already spoken about, if you're, if you tend to be a natural, uh, a nat natural challenger, what are the strategies you need to use to make sure you're bringing support so that you can move uh, the culture of your team to be a liberator culture. So that's, that's tip number two is just to think about, as a coach, where you lean naturally. And so that helps you see where you need to be more intentional in the type of feedback you're providing so that you are in control of the culture that you're creating. A uh, quick question for you on this. And, you know, I'm throwing you, out, uh, you know, it, putting you on the spot here. So, you know, you might not have an answer for it, but how many people do you, how, many, how, how often do coaches just automatically fall into that li liberator culture? Uh, I would say no, never. Yeah. That okay. Naturally, there is no one who naturally does both well. If they do both well, it's because they've learned one that is less natural to them. Um, and I could show you, I could show you all of the research and data behind that. It's actually based on um, Myers Briggs research, essentially, and how people are wired in terms of the type of feedback they prefer to receive. And personality research It's not just me spouting off this random stuff, um, but you know, I would say everyone is naturally wired one way or the other, and no one does both naturally well. But that doesn't mean you can't do both well. It just means that if you do both well, you've probably learned to do one well that didn't come naturally to you. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so tip number three. Tip number three. Um, tip number three is the use of constraints. And constraints is... Um, kind of a buzzword, I would say, at least in my coaching circles and what I read on Twitter, it's not a new term. Um, but I've, I've, I've had a really cool experience over the last couple of months. My younger brother um, has gotten into coaching, coaching high school basketball. Um, and so he and I have had got to have some awesome uh, conversations just about coaching. And I just, you know, and being flashback to all these times, my first teams and what it was like and the types of questions that I would ask. But um, I just noticed that in my conversations with him, he would ask me questions like, well, how do you teach this or how do you do that? And I just noticed that it has become so natural for me to think about how to structure a drill using constraints to get the behavior one to see versus what you tell them. Um, because I think my, my little brother is so used to the questions he asks is almost, what do I need to tell them to get them to do this? And my response is, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter what you tell them. It's how you incentivize within a drill to get the behavior that you want to see. And so um, 
game, I, I believe so much in a games-based approach, um, teaching through games, small-sided games, and then using constraints on those games um, to get the desired behavior. I think, I believe that learning happens at the intersection of thinking and doing. Um, and so constructing a drill so that they are having to think about um, what, what decision they're trying to make or trying to learn, but then also having enough reps to actually try and do it and fail at it um, so that they can be better and better at making that decision. And one of the examples that I, that I often uh, use is as just a three-on-three -three continuous drill. Um, there's a version of the drill that I really like that's a little bit hard to explain um, without showing it to people called Pinewood 3v3 or Pinewood 4v4, but Pinewood 4v4 is a famous drill. You could Google it if you want to look it up. But um, for the purposes of just giving coaches a practical example of this, uh, if you imagine three-on-three -three continuous, so three groups of three, you know, if you score on the basket, you get to take it down to the other end. If you get a stop, then you get to take it down to the other end. And there are just so many things you can teach out of that drill. One of my favorite things to do um, at the beginning of the year is I will just say, okay, um, threes are worth three. Any shot in the paint is worth three. And all everything in between the three-point line and the paint is worth one. And that's just a simple example of a constraint that I don't have to say, hey, guys, here's what we're trying to do. We as a team are trying to shoot stationary catch-and-shoot threes and layups at the rim but I don't have to explain any of that to them and just in how I've structured the drill and added a constraint, which is basically making a shot in the lane just as valuable as a three-pointer and made a mid-range shot less valuable, I've added a constraint to help get the desired behavior that I want to see. So um, my tip number three is use constraints, think about drills, take time to imagine, you can teach anything in three-on-three, but just imagine how to take three on three and structure it so that you are getting the desired behavior that you want to see based on the constraints that you use. Coach, do you spend much time after a drill kind of making sure that the kids have processed that constraint and they understand like why they're doing it? Yeah, we do that primarily in film. Mm -hmm. um, I try to, I, I value our court. I, I want our players to value our on court time. And I think they learn to actually devalue it the more that I'm talking. So, or the more really that anyone is talking, I would say. And so we try to basically um, keep that to almost a classroom setting. And we do have that it, within our practices, we'll structure 20 minutes of film or 20 minutes of uh, being in the classroom where we'll talk about those types of things. But I like to, when we're on the court, almost it be go, go, go. And I will pause and I will cold call somebody um, a drill at any point to say, you know, hey, what are we working on right here? And, you know, what do you see? right now and and why did you make that decision so in real time i'm always having checks to see where their understanding is at um and then so but from a standpoint of us stopping talking explaining to everybody hey what what exactly is going on here i try to kind of shy away from that but the, we as a coaching staff also will kind of evaluate drills on the fly how did that go do we need to come back to that when do we need to come back to that um and so yeah that's what i'd say yeah, and I know that you have some great notes uh, from a podcast that uh, Doug Lemov did, um, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and I think uh, you know I listened to that same podcast, and and this is something that I know is going to be a goal for me next year is is less talking. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I I just assume from what I've learned being a teacher um, that the more you're talking, the less learning is happening, 
And that may not be true, but I believe that to be so true that I'm going to go as far in that direction as I can to make sure learning is happening. And so I think they learn, learning happens at the intersection of thinking and doing. And so the more I can get them doing those two things, that happens way less often, the more I'm talking. And, and Doug Lamob, he talked about a great strategy to do exactly what you were talking about in that podcast called Interleaving, where, um, you know, the research shows that the best time to remember something to transfer it from short-term memory to long-term memory is right when we start to forget it. And so if you, if you go over something in practice and then you immediately go and do something else that has nothing to do with it and then come back to it after that drill, um, that your, your players have already started to forget it. That's a, that's a practice that's used in the classroom called interleaving um, that I think is a great one for coaches to use well to, to accomplish exactly what you're talking about. Right. And uh, based on the list that you gave me, I think that ties into point number four. That's exactly right. Um, I, I, tried to, I tried for there to be a little bit of flow from point to point. Uh, I hope, well, I you're hope doing a good job. Okay, good. Uh, number four is mindful, not mindless. And this is something that I'm learning and I was very convicted of. Uh, when I listened to that podcast specifically, they talked about this on there, but I'd already heard um, Chris Oliver on those podcasts talk about it. Um, multiple times, just that idea of, of practices being mindful. Um, and I remember as a player, um, you know, you could almost tell within the first 10 minutes how my coach was just his, you know, just how he was carrying himself that day. If I was going to have to be locked in that day and I would almost go, whew, good. This is a, a practice I could kind of coast through. Um, but I wasn't getting anything out of that practice. And so, um, one challenge I have for myself is to always be thinking about how to make my practices more mindful, not mindless, because I think that when players are going through mindless drills, whether it's a shooting drill, whether it is something we do every day, whether it's three man weave, whatever it is, if they're not thinking, they're not engaging their minds, um, then we're not really teaching them decision making. And there's a place for that. I think in some drills where it's just, Hey, we just need to work on technique. Uh, but even in those technique drills, thinking intentionally about how to get them thinking about the technique and not just going through the motions. Um, and so there are several things I'm going to do. I actually, you know, I, I kind of was, I had a light bulb moment for me because you know, as a teacher, I actually think that I've actually kind of been doing this naturally for a long time, but I wasn't necessarily taking some of those practices I use in the classroom and applying them to the basketball court. But um, a couple of things that I wrote down, I wrote interleaving down as something you can do to make sure that, hey, if you're saying something's important, um, showing them that, hey, it's not just important for you to remember tomorrow. I think coaches, a lot of times we get frustrated when we go over something one day and then we don't come back to it till the next day. And then the next day they, you know, it's like they remember nothing. Um, well, I think that's actually a problem with practice structure and practice design. Um, and so one thing I'm definitely going to use that interleaving strategy of, um, working on something, going, working on something else, and then coming right back to the thing we worked on two drills ago to make sure that, Hey, right at the moment that they're starting to forget it, we're going to try and transfer it into, into long-term memory. And then the other one that I just put there for mindful practices, that is something that I've learned in the classroom is just cold calling. Um, and that's a, that's a term that I think many coaches and teachers will be familiar with, but the idea that at any moment, at any time I could call on any of my players and ask them a question and they would need to be ready with the response and having some sort of um, expectation there where if you're not ready, if you're not being mindful, 
um, there's, there's some type of consequence to that, whether it's, you know, one we often do is, you know, just, Hey, one sprint, boom, go. It's not, it's not a lot. It's not embarrassing, but it's something that where there's at least an expectation they don't want to do it. So it holds them to some sort of standard, but something like that, where I'm going to try and be very intentional about cold calling more in my practices about having a, a clear uh, performance indicator for each drill that is around what the decision that they're making, what they're thinking. Um, and then using interleaving um, to try and transfer those concepts from short-term to long-term memory. Oh man, those are some great points. And I know, you know, that's something that I've been thinking a lot about was, 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 you know, the point on kind of behavior and that when I get frustrated because kids aren't paying attention or they're not focused, a lot of times I look, you can look at the drill and go, well, <laughs> you know, the reason why they're talking right now is because it's something where they can talk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So are we training them uh, to ignore us or to not listen to us or not pay attention because I haven't structured the drill in such a way that requires them to be mindful and their minds to be engaged? Yeah, that's a great point. All right, cool. So um, we're down to the last one, number five. Yeah, and this is, um, this is more of a value statement, but I think it's something that this is almost something that is a mantra to me that I just try to remind myself of every day. Um, I think so many coaches, we get so intellectually curious about the game of basketball that we forget, uh, and this is my number five tip here, uh, that we forget that we coach people uh, before we coach a sport. And um, and I think that, you know, it's amazing just how many, how to me, how many clinics um, we see about offenses and defenses and presses and, and press offenses and press breaks and just all this stuff that has to do with on the court. When at the end of the day, um, if you're not able to coach people, none of that stuff matters. Um, and so I think there's so much, um, and I would just say in the coaching circles that I interact with the most, I don't want to necessarily try and assume and make generalizations because I haven't seen coaching everywhere. I haven't seen coaching um, in all places. I haven't met any coaches in Idaho yet, uh, until now, but, um, but I, I just think that there's so much work that we have to do to coach people well. And we can sometimes get lost on the fact that, um, that the coaching people, part of this coaching young people specifically um, is huge. And there's just as much to be gained there, even intellectually, uh, in terms of coaching people as there is on the court. And yet it's so easy to become enamored with all of the on court stuff. Um, we are oftentimes the, the reason why I coach, uh, is because for me, um, the coaches in my life were the most impressionable were the most influential people on me. And so I kind of walk into the gym under the value statement that, you know what, um, I have a chance to be the most influential person in these young people's lives in the most impression in one of the most impressionable times in their lives. And so I take that weight very seriously. And I see that as the number one priority of kind of why I coach and why I do what I do. And, uh, and it kind of grounds me just to remind me that, Hey, at the end of the day, um, what these girls, what my players are going to remember is not really probably not even specifically the games they won or the games they lost. They might remember a couple of those. They're probably not even going to remember me and my friends. When we sit around and we talk, we remember funny moments in games. We have no idea if we won or lost that game. No clue. We remember if we were good or we remember that we were above 500. Uh, but what we remember are the bus rides and, and the times together in the locker room and the team meals and um, those long bus rides home. That's what we remember. And so 
Um, I think there's so much more work to be done. I think so much more of our time and energy should be spent on the environment and the culture we're creating for young people to be developed um, and to grow as people um, that I think sometimes we can forget that. So my number five tip is one, just kind of to round it all out um, to hopefully be a reminder for all of us that, you know, we coach people, not a sport. Yeah, I think uh, when you go through as many senior nights as I've gone through, you realize what the kids talk about, most of them is not about a game or when we won this. It's about, hey, like you said, the bus ride moments or when we got to go to state or, you know, when coach fell down while we were playing, you know, whatever. It's, it's those moments that they always bring up on that senior night. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we had a, a huge win last year. We actually got to play a team in State Farm Arena. We finished second to last in our region last year. They finished first and we beat them. It was a huge upset. It was kind of a crowning achievement of the season, one of our last games of the season. It was our best win in probably five years to that point. Um, and that was every single one of my seniors this year moment. And none of them mentioned anything about the game. It was all about everything else we did that day where we, you know, we went and did this in the city and that in the city. And, you know, this happened on the bus exactly like you're talking about. So I think that's, that's so true. I think it's important for us as coaches to remember that, you know, in, a, in essence, we have a part in creating some of those memories or, 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 we're, or not, you know, or not if we choose um, to, um, to not be intentional about that. But what are those memories that you're creating? It probably will have a lot more to do uh, with the type of person that you are, not how good of a coach you were. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a big thing for me uh, since I took over as a, as a head coach from my first year to going into my fourth year is, you know, I really am cognizant of experience. Like, what, what is the experience these kids are going to have? Now, there's going to be losses. There's going to be some tough times. But overall, you know, my hope is that they go away with overall a good experience. Well, Seth, those are five great tips, and I've, I've learned a lot from, uh, from, from you. I really appreciate you coming on, and so I want to thank you for coming on. But before we go, can you tell us a little bit more about TCD Teams and where coaches that might be interested in learning more about what you can, can offer them, where they can go to get, uh, get that information? Absolutely. So um, TCD Teams is basically um, – a company that I started to help coaches specifically with some of the things we were talking about in the earlier points. Um, but the, the tagline is to help coaches understand their players wiring, how their players are wired and communicate effectively specifically to their players. So this isn't like, Hey, I'm going to teach you some communication tips for you as a coach. Um, it's how can we educate you on some of the natural tendencies that people have just by their nature to communicate specifically to this type of player, this type of player, this type of this, and this type of player. And we do that through something called the five voices. It's a personality um, based assessment that is specific to communication. So it's looking at how people are wired and how that affects how they communicate both in, in terms of what they prefer to give and receive. Um, and so what I do is I take teams through the five voices workshop is what it's called. And for the team that actually functions as basically a team building experience. Okay. So we, when we go through the team workshop, the teams are there, they're talking about themselves, they're learning about their tendencies. And then afterwards, what I can do is I meet with the coaches and I'm basically able to give them extremely specific insights to their players based on the data that we collect in that team workshop. 
And so it's a, it's a really cool opportunity for coaches to basically educate themselves, not just on how to communicate in general, but on their specific players. Um, and so you can find all that information on, on my website. It's just, it's easy. It's tcdteams.com. TCD stands for trust, commit, delight. Those are just kind of like my personal values and what I'm trying to help um, coaches do with their players. So it's called tcdteams.com and you can um, see more about all that there. Well, thanks a lot, coach, for coming on. I really do appreciate this. And yes, there are coaches in Idaho and we appreciate, uh, <laughs> we appreciate the information that uh, you gave us tonight. And uh, uh, we're going to reach out in the future to have you talk about some other, other topics. Sounds good. I'd love to. Thanks, Will. This has been great. Thanks for listening to the Idaho Basketball Coaching Podcast. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, email me at idahobasketballcoachingpodcast at gmail.com. 